This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Why are these people out? It's because people are coming back to their senses of um, connected to humanity again. I think if we think about culture and we think about capitalism and we think about colonialism, we think about materialism. These are all the three things that we've been stuck on for a long period of time. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have on NFL All-Pro Michael Bennett. He's also the co-author of a book that I'm very familiar with called Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, a book that is filled with prophetic fire that I recommend you check out. Also, I've got some choice words about Maya Moore and her final victory this week in the freeing of Jonathan Irons. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards that are all geared around a certain NFL team and the push to change their racist name and more. But first, let's hear from the man himself, Michael Bennett. So first and foremost, like, what was your reaction when you first heard about the, the murder of George Floyd? I mean, I mean, I think it's, uh, hmm. I mean, I mean, it's overwhelming. I think it's overwhelming the amount of, um, you think about a human being losing his life and the way that he lost his life and the way that he was trying to reclaim his community. I think there's a sense of anger and a sense of sadness, connection to all of it. And you just, I'm just angry at the fact that, you know, we keep losing human life for something so simple every single day and you hear his daughter um, and hear his family talking it just makes it uh, just really overwhelming and it's a sense of uh, um, you feel dark you feel like there's nothing covering me I don't know it's just a lot of different ideas that's going through your head like what is what is it that makes people take life so freely and I think mm. you feel so sad for his family you feel like you know, all he wanted was to talk to his mama. All he wanted was to see his family again. And still somebody would allow that. The fact that, you know, life is uh, given to us by God and you see somebody take it from somebody, it's just hard to watch and hard to see, especially when you know, it's constantly shown on TV and there's a sense of numbness from, from you know, the tingles down to your fingers and tingles down to your heart and to your spine where you feel like you can't feel anything because it's just so, so deep. Huh? 
What about um, the marches in the street? I mean, you know, we now recognize that this has been the biggest social movement in the history of the United States in terms of the sheer number of people who've taken to the streets over the last uh, more than a month now. I mean, what's your what, what has been your reaction to see that unfold and to see so many athletes? We feel like we've come so far in this world because the technology has, you know, we have Instagram, we have all these things and our Teslas and stuff, but still the number one um, issue with the world and what's happening in the world is this is it's a dis um, the dis the discomfort and the the pain that we all feel just as human beings and I think the technology hasn't really hasn't really taken away from that you know things happen faster but I think when you see everybody in the street it's because the American dream and the American ideology of what America is supposed to mean to people and the body of people that it governs, it doesn't represent them in that way. And it has never represented them in a way that they would have freedom or in a way that they have free choice or in the sense of that they really mattered. So now you have all these different people out on the street. And it's a reminder of that there's so much more to go when you think about that we're flying the space, but there's still people starving. And that we build new buildings, but there's still people with no clothes on. So it's like there's still people dying from police violence. There's still lack of nutrition. There's still lack of education. All these different things that are happening because of the color of somebody's skin. There's the racial disparities upon the world of brown people all around the world. Makes you wonder what is, why are these people out? It's because people are coming back to their senses of um, connected to humanity again. I think we think about culture and we think about capitalism and we think about colonialism we think about materialism these are all the three things that we've been stuck on for a long period of time it's like we've been the, on the on the areolas of it right and it's like it's been the breathing factor into society as human beings and now we're really dealing with with you know reconciling with that reconciling with that um with that mindset it was like what is, what have we really been doing have we put income over humanity have we put you know have we put things over justice and i think we're realizing that we've really lost we've been out of touch with the importance of the human being and the importance of bringing people together in the person the importance of united like there's so many things that divide us but there's so many things that bring us together i think the racial disparities and the racial injustice that are happening in this country are bringing people together in a way we haven't seen in a long time has it surprised you to see the number of athletes who've involved themselves in the struggle directly, even marching in the streets? Uh, I think it's a, I don't know if I'm, I think it's a little surprising and it's like not surprising at the same time. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know how, <laughs> how to like, no, I'm not surprised, but then I am a little surprised because there's been moments, there's been athletes um, speaking and doing things, but the magnitude of the amount of athletes now is a little bit surprising because, you know, but it's good because it's like that awakening that we all are having in this, this reality and the subconscious that we've been unconscious to, you know, what's been happening around us because we've been so um, attached to capitalism. And I think athletes are suffering from that. If, if anybody suffers from that, it's us because, Everything we do is is from a capitalist mindset from the beginning when we first 
get traded into the NCAA. We get in there, people of college, and it's like you're already in the business if you look at Texas football and the way that people do high school students and how they business. So it's like there's this idea that their body is a part of this capitalism. So it's like they've been so like uh, almost subhuman and haven't been connected to that that idea of, of, of being a part of society. And now, you know, there's so many different um, titles that break us and slowly take us away from our dignity and slowly take us away from our connection to our humanity and our people. And I think we started, I think people are starting, starting to break those barriers again and starting to take that glass ceiling off and realizing that there's more to them than just being the title that people express when they see them, where there's, oh, the legend or the athlete or this is more like um, identifying with who I am as an individual and who I am as a, as, as in a group and who I am as an American citizen. Now you were talking about these issues back in 2016, you were sitting during the anthem to raise awareness about these issues. Is, is there a sense at all of you feeling vindicated by all the marches? No, I don't that- think I've been, I don't feel vindicated because I mean, I've been talking about this since I was a kid. I mean, this has just been a part of my reality and the people before me have talked about it. So the vindication is, is I don't, the vindication is the, is the issue. It's like, that's it's the fact that I was talking about the issue. It's not so much about the marches. It's just literally that these, it's the history of Emmett it's the history of Kwame Tomei, it's the history of uh, Marcus Garvey, it's the history of all these things that have happened in America, the lynchings, the sundown towns, all these different avenues that have been happening, the hangings, this just amount of of racial racial inequality and the racial disparities in the history and the context of America, the perpetual cycle of being over policed, the perpetual cycle of race, the perpetual cycle of being held down because of the skin and color. I think that is the vindication of why we keep doing it is because these issues are keep happening and we have this obligation and this duty and this connection to our history and connection to people and connection to humanity and the connection to what's happening in Palestine, the connection has happened in indigenous properties all around the world, Native Americans. It's the connection to human humanity and the intersectionality that leaves me vindicated because when you stand on the right side of truth, then you don't have to too much worry about darkness because the light is on on those issues and who he who stands underneath that light is is vindicated anywhere it goes. Now Let's walk through the last uh, month or so about the National Football League's response. You know, they put out that original statement, and then the players made their own video speaking about how that statement was not enough and that the league should not have cracked down on players for being political. Then Roger Goodell did a follow-up. And how, how do you assess how the NFL has handled this moment? I mean, I think it's still the middle ground. I think it's the middle ground because, like I've said before, some other stuff is this. Like, it's hard to say that you believe in these issues when we're still having owners supporting Donald Trump. You know what I'm saying? So it's like it's hard to really see the value in the system. But I think the NFL is trying to make strides and trying to find a common ground where they can find the balance of being a company and also being socially active. So. But as like you can't really, you really don't really understand because so much has happened since the time Colin Kaepernick has taken. So many lives have been lost. And for me, it's just always about what could we have done to stop those and why now? I think it's about intent and the intentional. And is it an intent 
to uh, is it an intent? You know what I'm saying? Is it what are our social morals? What are our social quarrels? What is what is our humanity coming to this? Is this about propaganda or is it about you know the judgment or disapproval of society? Or is it really about ourselves and really about really changing the lives of other human beings? I think the jury's still out on that. I think that's going to take time for them to really show that. I think we look at money and we think that we could throw money at a lot of different issues. But I think this is an issue that we throw money at it and we don't really put our footing and put our hands on the ground and our foot on the ground. Then it's going to look like it wasn't really a real, didn't have the real intention of really changing society. And I think that's what it's all about. And I think if you look at Roger Goodell, I think he kind of missed the point and missed the, missed the opportunity, but it, it just seems so null and void when you look at the Colin Kaepernick situation and we're thinking like, okay, if this is true, then why isn't Colin Kaepernick have a job? And I think it's an, that is, that's an important uh, part of the, uh, the equation, but also it's a part, important part to help change the policy and also push the culture forward I don't know where they really stand on that. So I think the jury's still out on that. And I think a lot of the players, too. I think a lot of the players are at the moment, too, where they're trying to figure out how to use their voices. And now it seems like they're being allowed because they're going with the going with how society, the wave of being able to speak in wave and not being torn down. But I think um, before when Colin Kaepernick, everybody was taking a knee, it was like they were outliers. And now it seems to be part of the crowd to be able to speak up. Yeah. Do you fear at all that that kind of dissent or protest is going to become, I don't know, commodified or absorbed by the system and, you know, and, and, and made safe when, you know, when you did it, it was something that really did speak truth to power? Say that again. Do you have any concerns at all that this at the act of protesting, you know, during the anthem is going to become made safe, you know, it's going to become absorbed. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's, I don't know if it's going to have the same defiance that it once had, right? Because it was going against the grain. It wasn't expected, but if it's indoctrinated into the league and as is the sand, is it truly resistance at that point? Mm. Or is it just a part of, is it just a part of the program at that point, you know, to play the national black anthem? Is it really uh, uh, resistance? Is it really resisting the, the, cultural norms have been accepted by America. I'm not sure if it is resistance at that point, because once you play the black national anthem, then you play the United States national anthem, then you you are dividing the, the context of what the national anthem is supposed to be. The national anthem is supposed to represent, the constitution is supposed to represent its governing the body of people that is governing, but it hasn't represented that. So now we're looking at something that is not resistance and we want that to happen, then we've been in bending the mold to fit into this this square we're a circle trying to bend we're a square trying to bend inside this circle it's just not going to work yeah and now as we're doing this interview you know one of the fruits of of all of this protest has been that the nfl you know they're talking about changing the name of the washington football team you probably have heard about that what what's your what's your reaction to that news that this you know really might happen I mean, I think I've been I've been saying this for a while. I think, um, you know, I, I think the uh, uh, power and the perception that you know the the dominant group of America is acknowledging that there's a privileged group of people in society who've been able to use like racial slurs for for profit for profitability, and I think 
then you look at the Native American people, you know, they they've been overlooked when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about revealing the underprivileged people in America and who what they suffered over the period of time, and that the conscious of their rights in society really hasn't been really paid attention to. And I think we've been looking at something that's been a slur for so long, but we've been so numb and we've been so unconscious to looking at the Redskins and thinking that it's a symbol when it's really been something that's been derogatory for periods and periods and periods of time. So I think we as a group of people and we as we as an intersectional um, resistance for people of color around the world, it's important that black people, Hispanic people, everybody, Asian people really recognize um, the disenfranchisement, disenchantment there is with, you know, their logo and the importance of us coming together and really changing it. And I think the NFL is starting to see that we, the world is not going to accept blatant racism the way that it used to. Wow. Now, just to take it away from the NFL, um, I wanted to ask you just some uh, what you have to say to all these young people who are in the streets. I mean, I was thinking about it that, you know, I've go to these demonstrations and there are people like, you know, my daughter's been to some of these demonstrations and she's just 15. So she was 11 years old when you were protesting as a player when you first started. Uh, What do you have to say to all these young people who are in the streets? Well, I think it's important that these young people realize that that they're realizing that that they're inspiring a whole other generation that they're going to keep pushing forward to see this the way of the world that they see. They have to reimagine what society can look like, reimagine the importance of being connected. And I think these young people are what's pushing the culture forward, and it's important because even though we don't see everything that's happening for the future, because a lot of people are going to be dead by then. A lot of people are going to be gone to see the change in America and the change, but the young people watching them do it is enough because we know that they are really moving forward and they have a connection. So I would just say keep on going because they're inspiring so many people. When you think 11 year old, 15 year old kids are out there trying to push the culture forward, I think this is important. And I think it's, you can't miss that step. I think without them and without those their moves that they're doing, there is no America, there is no change, and I think there's an important key to all this, and the young people are that key. Mm. What about, uh, what do you have to say to the young people who took a knee back in 2016, 2017? Remember all the high school students, middle school students, college kids? What what do you have to say to them now? I would say that you you guys did the right thing. I think you guys took the knee and understood the process and the importance of being connected to somebody other than yourself. I think the battle of human beings and the human thing is the self-preservation. And I think we as human beings want to survive sometimes and we um, don't worry about others. And I think those people who are at a young age, in 13, 14, in high school, take a knee, they already beat something and they were thinking about the importance of other people and the connection of other people. So these those kids are powerful because at the end of the day, they understood the connection and why we as individuals and why we as a group and why they're standing on the other side of this is because they already knew and they're so thankful that they had the opportunity to take that because now they're seeing it in history as being outliers and resisting the normal normal things of America. Wow. You know, um, 
I also want to ask you if you you know NFL fans. They're not exact. They're overwhelmingly white. They're not exactly great when it comes to change. What what message do you have for the NFL fan base out there? The NFL is just about us as human beings really dealing with ourselves and really dealing with the fight and really dealing with the the human relations that we have on a daily basis, basis and the viewpoint of society from others and how do we represent a moral achievement and, and moving forward for all of humanity. And I think it's important that all people around the world really get attached to the suffering of the injustice of the many, right? And try to really grasp the inevitable tensions that are going to happen if we as, an, as we as an individual and we as a society don't take a hold of that. And if we intend to hide and to, 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 to increase our impunity or, or of our social selves, then eventually that mass that we keep hiding about around and that mass isn't inclusive in the future that the social idea that we are having, the social desire, this, this conflict that, is keep coming, that keeps coming around is going to continuously get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's going to create something that we all don't want to have. And I think it's important that if we don't understand the suffering and the injustice of the many, then we're going to be so far along that we won't have the armor of our morality. We won't have the armor of the connection of humanity. We'll be just like every other creature in every other society will fall apart because we'll be so disconnected and this, this, we'll be so disconnected and we'll be so unjust that at the end of the day, there won't be any more peace. There won't be any more rationality because at the end of the day, everybody's going to continue to fight. But I think there's a point where we all have to stop being dishonest and come together and realize that at the end of the day, if we break down our human DNA, break down our human philosophies, every human wants the same thing. But at some point, we try to create deception to act like we don't want that and create a caste system to keep us from achieving the goals that we see fair. So if we as human beings don't come along and move forward beyond just sports, beyond everything, and realize the importance of the human people, that we are the most important thing on the planet, and that if we all, the earth doesn't need us, the earth continues to grow, the trees continue to grow, if we kill ourselves off, then that's going to be our own issue. Yeah, that's real talk right there. And just last question for you. Just given everything that's happened over the last several months, how do you think people should... uh, I know judge isn't the right word, but how should people assess you, Colin Kaepernick, and all of the work you've done over the last four years? Really, I don't think people should assess us. You know, I think people should look at us as a part of the whole. I think we were just all part of that piece of the pie, the society that I was talking about. I think we, at some point, we realized that there's a lot of dishonesty going around and going around the world, and that at some point, the dishonesty needs to be revealed. And I think there's so many truth tellers before us that's been on this planet and and that they have put all their work into telling their stories and being a part of history and being a part of mankind. I think to be to realize that we are a part of, of what's happening, a part of a movement, we're a part of history, that's just the normal thing that everybody should be doing on the planet is being a part of the change. And I think that's why we're seeing so many people in the streets because everybody is being a part of the change. And I think we're no different. We're not special in any kind of way. 
We don't have any superpowers. We don't have anything. All we just have is, a, have is a voice, and we have a connection to the human dignity and the human importance of the survival of mankind and the survival of people that look like us and the survival of people who don't have a voice. That's real talk right there. Hey, M- Michael Bennett, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Michael Bennett. We'll be back right after this message. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back. And now I've got some choice words about Maya Moore. Okay, look, after 22 years behind bars for a crime he did not commit, Jonathan Irons is at long last a free man. Irons, who is only 40 years old, had been sentenced to 50 years for a burglary and assault he was said to have committed at age 16. Despite a lack of evidence linking him to the crime, an all-white St. Louis jury convicted the then 16-year-old as an adult. What makes this a sports story, as we have covered extensively on this podcast, is that WNBA All-Star MVP and champion Maya Moore, one of the greatest to ever pick up a basketball, gave up two years of the prime of her career to fight for Irons' freedom. Their connection came through Moore's family. Her great uncle, who had been doing prison ministry for close to 30 years, became a mentor to the young Mr. Irons about 18 years ago when Moore was just 13. As a first-year student and star hoopster at the University of Connecticut, she met Irons and a bond was forged. Moore, tenacious as hell on the court, committed to seeing Jonathan breathe freely no matter the cost. Her Minnesota Lynx coach Cheryl Reeves said in a statement, Maya Moore got to celebrate another championship yesterday, and none of us who have been blessed to have Maya in our lives are surprised. I cannot imagine, however, what this one must feel like. I was overwhelmed seeing Maya watch Jonathan Irons walk out of the Jefferson City Correctional Center a free man. I also can't help but feel a great deal of anger. Maya Moore should never have had to leave her profession to engage in the fight against the two-tiered criminal justice system that over-polices, wrongfully convicts, and over-sentences black and brown communities. The criminal justice system in America is so far from fair and equal, and it angers me that Maya has had to sacrifice so much to overcome this racially disparate system. Reeve is, of course, correct. As joyous as this news is, this is an example of the system failing, or perhaps the system working in the racist manner in which it was designed. How many Jonathan Irons are there in our nation's prisons who don't have a superstar athlete, guardian, angel to secure their freedom? Consider all Maya Moore had to do, sacrifice money, fame, and the prime of her career to see justice in just this one case. It's actually a humbling example of all the work that needs to be done. Now, I've interviewed Maya Moore about this case over the years on this podcast. And what has been striking in our conversations is her sense of faith and determination that justice would in fact prevail. And this is not a one-off for Moore. 
Her conviction is rooted not only in her relationship with Irons, but also in a broader belief that the criminal justice system has racism baked into it and needs to be challenged at every conceivable level. I think being in the African-American community, I have a built-in connection to issues facing black Americans, she said to me in 2018. But it's also being in the sports world today and being connected to people that are taking an interest in the issues that face minorities and people of color. It was also seeing the documentary 13th. That was a really powerful piece that just woke me up in a greater way. Some of the things I knew, some of the things I wasn't aware of politically, the flow from slavery to today, and just how oppressive laws continue to morph and how much further we still have to go. One thing is certain, we in the sports media need to raise Maya Moore's name up far higher than it has been lifted up until now. She is one of the rare few willing to put it all on the line and sacrifice for the greater good. That we don't extol Maya Moore in the way we do Colin Kaepernick speaks to the ways in which black women are marginalized. That must happen no longer. There is no precedent for Maya Moore. She sacrificed, she fought, and alongside the efforts of Jonathan Irons himself, she won. Maya Moore is a legend, but not one on a pedestal. She is a legend we can emulate by joining the fight against racism and the edge of racism's knife, our system of criminal injustice. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up. Stand Up! And just sit your ass down. And all of this is themed on the fact that it seems like we are on the precipice of a major change in the sports world that we actually look like we are going to see the changing of the billion-dollar racist brand, the racial slur, that accompanies the football franchise in the nation's capital. I'm talking, of course, about the Washington football team, the Burgundy and Gold, the Washington Slurskins, whatever you want to call them. It looks like that name is about to change. Uh, It looks like those discussions are finally happening. And hey, all it took was a 50-state national uprising against racism. And all it took was corporations freaking out about that uprising and pulling their money from the Washington football team. And all it took was the owner of the team, Dan Snyder, being backed into an absolute corner by the forces that be, by massive historical forces, by the largest social movement in the history of the United States by sheer numbers. That's been calculated by the New York Times. That's all it took to change this name. But for the Just Stand Up, I want to recognize everybody who's been working on this issue for decades. I mean, we're talking over 50 years since the start of the American Indian movement. That's AIM uh, in the late 1960s. That's when the movement started to actually change the name of the Washington Slurskins. And over the years, people like Susan Schoen Harjo, Amanda Blackhorse, uh, the families of, of, of Dennis Banks and Russell Means. I mean, people have fought 
to change this name. People have fought against racist mascotry. Shout out to Jackie Keeler, who's been on the show a bunch of times and who founded the organization Eradicating Offensive Native Mascotry. I mean, there's been so much push around this issue. I mean, here in D.C., I've been at community meetings, tablings, uh, events at, at black churches where we argued with the folks there about the importance of changing the name and debates were had inside the church. Uh, all of these things have played a role in getting us to this point right now to changing the name. And the fact that we're this close, let me, let me just say it matters. This isn't just symbolism. This isn't just performative anti-racism. We know from the American Psychiatric Association that uh, the name of the Washington football team actually harms kids. It hurts kids. These are the studies. This is what they tell us. Uh, in addition, we know that the thing about mascotting is that it can't be separated from the horrific conditions that take place in Indian country, from police brutality to child mortality rates. Um, all of this is connected because when you see somebody as a thing, when you see somebody as an other, when you see somebody as a mascot, it's that much easier to ignore their plight. So what a tremendous uh, victory this could be. We're so close to it. We're not there yet. And the reason why we're not there yet is who gets the Just Sit Your Ass Down award. Sit your ass down. And that goes to Dan Snyder, the owner of the team. Uh, Dan Snyder, the reports say that he's in serious discussions with the NFL about changing the name. But please, please, please do not let up the pressure. Do not believe that this is going to happen until you actually see a new name on this franchise. I'll believe it when I see it. I mean, Dan Snyder, his reasons for keeping the name, I mean, are, are all wrapped up, first of all, in his own bigotry, but it's also wrapped up in this weird Freudian thing he has with his late father, Jerry Snyder, who is a reporter, and uh, he wants to preserve the name uh, because of his dad. I mean, even though his dad actually had objections to the name. So there, there's all kinds of weird psychological uh, issues there that are frankly well beyond my pay grade for why Dan Snyder will cling to this name and you'll have to pry it away from his fingers. So uh, we're not there yet. I'll believe it when I see it. Dan Snyder is too unstable a character to think that this victory is already done. But we're so close. And Dan Snyder, I want this just out there that when he finally does change the name, when the NFL does change the name, there's gonna be a lot of people in media who wanna give him a cookie. They'll want the cookie, but they get no cookie. Uh-uh. And it's not like these corporations deserve a cookie either. It's not like they woke up and just said, my word, heaven forfend, this name is racist. We must change it. Are you, are you kidding me? People have been making this argument for decades. What they've woken up to is the fact that this young generation in this country, they are more left wing and they are less white than every other generation uh, in the United States. And they are not going to put up with this racist brand. And corporations are realizing that. Uh, the NFL is realizing that. I don't think Dan Snyder realizes it. But hey, if we could push him to do the right thing, then that's a victory for our side. Because Dan Snyder's the one who said this would never happen. And we're learning that when you say never and you're on the side of bigotry, that can come back and bite you in the ass. And now's the time of the show we do the part where we call Kaepernick Watch, the latest comings and goings about Colin Kaepernick. Uh, the news this week, if people might have heard, is that there's going to be a television show that he's uh, producing with Ava DuVernay, the director, of course, of Selma and 13th, which we mentioned earlier in the show is a big influence on Maya Moore. 
they're doing a program called Kaepernick in Black and White, which is about his upbringing uh, being an adopted kid uh, by a white family uh, in Milwaukee uh, and what that was like for him growing up. And I mean, I got to tell you, like anything that uh, expands the Colin Kaepernick narrative, I think is very important. I think it's going to help a lot of folks. And Ava DuVernay, I mean, just having her name on it makes you know that this is going to be a serious project. And that sounds great because, you know, there's been a push to get Colin Kaepernick to speak about his life, his upbringing, what shaped him. And he's uh, been, you know, very much of a kind of Sphinxian figure of where these ideas about how he was formed have really not been expressed. And so I think that this is going to be very important for rounding out this question of who is Colin Kaepernick, this person who's inspired uh, so much protest in this country at a time when it was so desperately needed. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Um, I want to thank everybody out there for listening. Thanks to my uh, producer, David Tigaboo, for always making it real. David Tigaboo also hosts his own podcast that people should check out. What's it called, David? Run It Black. Run It Black. Great name, by the way. Uh, and it's a great pod. People should check it out when they drop episodes. Just uh, You could subscribe to it on iTunes. And you can subscribe, of course, if you're listening to the Edge of Sports podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave a comment. Please leave a review. Uh, all that stuff does great things for our, for our uh, humble project right here. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you so much to Michael Bennett for always keeping it real. Check out uh, the book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. Wear a mask. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.